From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics, with today's show on Dropping the Ball, how we can actually gain more control over our lives by giving up some of it, and how we can maximize both our happiness, our impact in the world, while creating more authentic gender parity in the process. We'll be joined by the positively extraordinary Tiffany Dufu, author of the book Drop the Ball, Achieve More by Doing Less. She's a powerful voice in the call to help women and men engage each other fully in the dual domains of work and life especially in those years where we are simultaneously building our careers and our families and struggling to keep it all together as a result. Tiffany outlines solutions that are simultaneously radical, impactful, and actually within our reach. We're going to talk with her about how this is actually a revolution that can start at home with each one of us and her inspiring and instructive personal story. To give you some of the high-level information so we can dive into all the real good details with Tiffany, she is a catalyst at large in the world of women's leadership. Named to Fast Company's League of Extraordinary Women, Tiffany was a launch team member to Lean In and is chief leadership officer to to Levo, one of the fastest-growing millennial professional networks. Prior to that, Tiffany served as president of the White House Project, as a major gift officer at Simmons College in Boston, and as associate director of development at Seattle Girls School, an institution committed to giving all girls the power to be innovative, confident, critical thinkers. So with that, I'd like to say, Tiffany, welcome to Women at Work. We're honored to have you. Thank you for having me. It's great. So, Tiffany, just from reading your bio, it's clear that your life has an organizing theme to it. Oh, absolutely. My (laughs) life's work is advancing women and girls. That's pretty much why I'm on the planet. So (laughs) my life is very, very simple. I know what's on my tombstone and I just kind of project manage it backwards from there. Well, speaking of project managing backwards in your tombstone, in the book, you talk about how purposefully you and your husband think about how you make decisions, what your driving principles are, and four questions that you promise to ask yourselves. Would you share those with us? Oh, sure. There you're referring to what we now call our couple's compass. Um, It didn't have a name, I'll be honest, before I wrote the book. They were just four questions that we developed very, very early in our marriage and in our lives as young adults. And they include four questions that we, whenever we get to a crossroad or we have to make a decision or we're just struggling, we ask ourselves, is this? the decision that we're, that we need to make, will it advance women and girls or will it advance sub-Saharan Africa, which is my husband's purpose and life's work? Will this put us on a path to financial freedom? Is this in alignment with the values that our parents instilled in us? And finally, will this make our descendants proud? You know, if we're looking back and, and they're looking back at us, would, would they be proud of our decision? And if the answer to all four of those questions is yes for both of us, then we move forward and we say yes to whatever it is, and then we worry about the logistics and the details later. I have to tell you, when I read that, I was amazed and inspired. It reflected a clarity of thought and um, a harmony in your partnership that I think for a lot of us is something we just aspire towards. How did oh, you no. know you had that at that age? <laughs> well, In the book, I tell the story of how we arrived at those questions. 
Um, I think the one thing that may be unique, but I feel not not so unique to particularly young couples of color, is that we so we've always felt that our marriage wasn't just for us because we loved each other. Mm-hmm. We felt that our marriage was. I know it sounds very cheesy, but kind of diasporic Africa coming together to, you know, make the world a better place and advance our people. Um, my husband It's not cheesy at all. <laughs> He's from Ghana, West Africa. Uh, I'm from here, originally from Seattle, but, you know, I'm African-American. And we have always felt that given the fact that, you know, my dad was one of 11 kids born into a housing project in Los Angeles and his father, you know, sold bread on the side of the road in a village in Ghana in order to just get access to his education, that we owe it to our family and to our community and to the world to make it a better place. So we've always felt like sometimes that would mean in our marriage and in our relationship that we would have to sacrifice personally and professionally in order for the greater good. And that the, the couple's compass was definitely derived at just from that feeling and that understanding. And quite frankly, it was literally on a car ride back from this party that we had gone to. It was um, one of the celebrations, Independence Days for Ghana, and we were coming back from a party. And we were just talking about how we would lead our lives. And I thought that we should create some kind of plan or, you know, some kind of um Strategy And Kojo felt strong that it should be a series of questions. He asked me about the ways in which I had really gained success in life. And it's largely through connecting with people who have helped me to achieve clarity through them asking me really good questions. So um, I think it's been the most important thing I'll say is sometimes people ask, did you know that you were going to be where you are today? And my answer is always yes and no. I didn't know that I would be living in New York City. I had no idea that I would be, you know, an author with a book that had just published. I couldn't have told you that Lavo would have even existed or that I would have been president of the White House Project. But I could have told you that I would be on track to live my purpose of advancing women and girls, that I would be on a path to financial freedom, that whatever I was doing, that it would be in alignment with the values that my parents taught me, and that my descendants would be proud of me. I could have told you that. (laughs) And it's also not surprising as I read how your story unfolded, because you took what was clearly both of you are um, deeply intelligent enormously driven. Um, You leveraged opportunity that came your way and maximized education, the the great meritocracy that exists in this Mm -hmm. country. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, I I feel like it's a little foreshadowing that you made, you wanted to make a plan, and he wanted to ask questions. Yes. Yes, it is foreshadowing, because our relationship, and especially the early phase of it, was very much about me being quite obsessed with wanting things to go well and wanting to be successful and not wanting to take risks in hindsight by, you know, my youngest sister always says, Tiffany, you're so boring. You never want to learn a lesson yourself. And (laughs) what she means is that I'm very happy to sit at the foot of someone who's been around the block way more times than I have and to get insight and advice from them and not recreate the wheel. And so very early in my life and in my leadership and even in my marriage, I was always very hell-bent on figuring out what is the best way for me to be successful and to achieve results and 
to do it flawlessly, um, which now I see was quite unrealistic, but at the time <laughs> seemed very, very doable. Right. And, the, and a, an aspect of this that I find fascinating, also given that I've read the book and I know what happens, is that um, it's real what you said about making this promise to one another that if your decisions answered these questions, then you would follow them through because it was advancing everything that mattered to you and without resentment. And you and Kojo, your husband, had time apart, living in different cities, sometimes on different continents, and really facilitated each other's success. But what I found interesting was where most people think those are the things that would be a problem. Um, where resentment started to foment was actually at home. Mm-hmm. Could you talk exactly. a little bit how that happened? Yes. So I, you know, have this irony of my life and my career, which was that for most of my early career, while I have always been a very passionate advocate of women and girls, and while publicly I advocated for really disrupting gender stereotypes in the workplace and in the public sphere. My kind of dirty feminist secret was that at home, I didn't question them at all. At home, I was on Stepford Wife autopilot. Mm -hmm. And for the first eight years of my marriage, it wasn't an intentional curation of roles. It was kind of like the default ringtone on your iPhone that works, so you just never change it. <laughs> I loved um, that comparison because it's yeah, really apt. That's all. That's all it is. Um, I really did most of what you would call the domestic labor on the home front. Everything from planning, you know, potlucks, planning events doing the laundry, folding the clothes, changing the linens, um, just managing our social calendar, opening the mail, pretty much what it took to manage a home internally. I, or at least for the first, for a long time in my marriage, thought I was the only one that was really contributing to this part of things. And believe it or not, it never occurred to me that it shouldn't be that way, right? So, <laughs> right. so even though you had have done you know, and if you did an analysis of the labor in our home, you know, in 1997, it wouldn't have looked any different from a couple in 1950. Right. I thought of myself, and we both thought of ourselves as a very progressive, modern, empowered couple. So I want to be really clear. Like, I was a feminist who believed very strongly in women's, you know, non-traditional roles. It's just that at home, I never thought about the fact that I was executing um, them pretty flawlessly. And to be honest, it never really became a pain point until I had my own tipping point, was, which was the birth of our first child and then me going back to work. But I have to say, especially being on the road with this book, a tipping point could be anything. I mean, I've had Absolutely. women come up to me and say it was a care, you know, giving responsibility that I had because my mom became very ill. Or I had a man come up to me and say, I worked like half of my career to get this one job and then I got it and it became way too much. It was clearly more than what I could chew. And I realized that I was in over my head. So, but my tipping point was really going back to work after my first maternity leave. Um, by the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Tiffany Dufu about her awesome book, Drop the Ball, Achieve More by Doing Less. So, Tiffany, there are a lot of stories in what you just shared with us, and I'm, so I'm going to wind us back a little bit so we can cover some of the important ones. You referred to the Stepford Wife thing, 
Mm-hmm. And I really appreciate it because we're pretty much contemporaries that you also talked about the Martha Stewart recipes. Yeah. Um, and while we could probably have a whole show on the enormous <laughs> irony of Martha Stewart, who is a phenomenally powerful, successful woman, but the products that she put out there, like, it sent me to therapy. Um, <laughs> the the drive to be a domestic goddess, to to execute with the same perfection and elegance inside the house that we try and execute at work. Absolutely. You know, what's so fascinating about it is, you know, in my drop the ball journey, because I really had to begin to question for myself, you know, all this pressure that I'm feeling, where did it come from? Like, why Mm -hmm. do I feel so strongly that the towels must be folded in a certain way in the linen closet, otherwise (laughs) they're wrong. Or why am I so obsessed with the hangers facing the same direction in the closet? Like, like where exactly did that come from? And even though Martha Stewart certainly perpetuated it and also gave me lots of tools and tips to be able to execute on it, really I had to go back to my early conditioning And one of the things I found very fascinating is in asking myself very basic questions like, so what does a good ex do? Like, what does a good daughter do? What does a good wife do? What what does a good mother do? And then, like, how do you know that that's what a good ex does? How do you know that 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 a good wife makes sure that all the towels are folded, you know, in in a linen closet? A lot of it went back to my mother. And what Mm -hmm. I see her execute so flawlessly, by the way, she did all of this, you know, when I was growing up without a smartphone, without (laughs) email, and ironically and crazily enough, without another full-time job outside the home. For most of my childhood and my upbringing, my mother was what I call a non-paid working mom, because all moms are working moms. No, it's a good way of putting it. Some of us don't. And yet, even though that was primarily her full-time job was managing the home, somehow I thought that I was going to be able to execute that part of my role flawlessly, despite the fact that in addition to that, I was also working outside the home full-time. I think a lot of, I know, I know a lot of us um, have internalized those messages, our mothers as role models. Um, I constantly look around my house and think, oh, my God, I'd like be ashamed if my mother saw this, who still while working, she also did unpaid work at home and then was um, working full time as a children's clothes designer uh, after I was in high school. But her house was still astonishingly immaculate. Immaculate. Always gorgeous. Now, granted, she's a designer, so visual things matter to her. But it also made me wonder, and I wanted to ask you this question, is some of our fussing at home not only about our notion of how we're judged, but is some of it a way that if we can get our immediate world under control, it helps us deal with our anxiety about not feeling control in the world at large? Well, absolutely. Of course, the whole irony of it is that our quest to get it under control only raises our level of anxiety. Because on the home front, we often have this notion and this belief in what I call a a false efficiency, (laughs) which is that in order to get it all done, we should just do it all ourselves because we're the only one under our roof who knows how to get it done. And it's just too much work to delegate it to someone else inside of our home, which means that we perpetually have an unending to-do list of things that need to be done really, really well 
And we do feel like in our minds, well, if we can keep it under control, and I interviewed a number of women, um, one of whom's name was Felicia, who was an absolute riot, who just had rules for making up rules. I mean, mean, like, control at her home was the name of the game, and I still related to it. At the same time, all of the effort that goes into maintaining that actually creates even more work and even more anxiety. Absolutely. It reminded me of, it's actually a poster that was in my fifth grade classroom, You know, I have to have a shout out to Mrs. Torchinsky. I loved her. Um, And it showed the picture of an open hand facing the sky and the palm was full of a pile of sand. And it asked the question of what's the best way to hold as much sand as possible in your hand. And it then showed what happened if you try and contain the sand by closing your hand around it. It all squeezes out the sides. You won't hold on to any of it. But if you can keep your hand open to the sky and let a few grains blow around here and there, you will actually hold more of it a whole lot longer. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. And that's precisely it. Yay. Okay, good. (laughs) Thank you. Because that's that's what I kept thinking of as I was reading this. Like we're desperate to keep control and we wind up choking the life out of it. That's it. That's it. And we, we end up choking the life out of innovation. So one of the things that was just a huge aha moment for me and going back and conjuring up this journey was the way in which my uh, my management at home was so different than my management at work. And even the philosophy and my approach, you know, at work, I was always advocating for diversity for having diverse perspectives and diverse lenses and and viewpoints sitting around the table in order for us to achieve a more innovative outcome and a better outcome. Because especially as a diversity practitioner, I knew that the research showed that that would lead to better ideas and better solutions. But at home, I seemingly wasn't able to take that same framework and that same strategy and apply it. Is that because we don't need the diverse points of view? Because ours are really right. They exactly, exactly, because we pretty much know, and I describe it in the book, I call, I call it HCD, home control disease. Oh, my God, it's I love basically, it. basically, you know, this phenomenon where you think that everything under your roof should be done a certain way, which is basically your way. Or my mother's and, way. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, what happens, though, is that you're then blind to the ways in which other people's way could actually be better could actually lead to better outcomes and could free you up in order to do other things in the world. But in order to do that, you've got to have a certain amount of trust with your partner, right? Or you things could get so bad, as you did in my <laughs> case, right? So, I mean, I'm really honest in the book and when I tell the story that it wasn't as if I strategically decided I'm going to drop balls. What happened was that I proceeded to try to execute flawlessly at home and at work, and it didn't work because you can't. And the person who was always most terrified of dropping balls started dropping them left and right. Would and you? I, sorry. Oh, and so what I discovered, though, is that the world doesn't fall apart when you do. No, it doesn't. But I think recognizing where that shift comes from of when you think you have it all under control and you have that aha moment. Yours came on a bathroom stall the day you went back to work, right? Yes. So one of the things that I'm most, most fortunate of, and I don't know what it was inside of me, I'll give my mother credit, was that very early in my drop the ball journey, 
I it hit me and it dawned on me that something was terribly wrong and that I would have to do something about it. What I mean is that in the process of writing this book, I've met and interviewed and interacted with so many women who it didn't happen the first day back from maternity leave. Right? <laughs> right. They, it, it, it's been years of them trying to carry all of these balls, and it's having such an adverse impact on their health, their well-being, the other relationships with people in their lives. Whereas for some reason, on my first day back from maternity leave, when, I mean, full disclosure, my boobs literally exploded, I forgot to pump because oh I was God. so busy running from meeting to meeting that by the time I realized that I needed to pump, it was basically too late. And I ended up having to express the milk with like warm paper towels into the toilet in a bathroom stall on Which- my first day back from work. Which is a heart. I think for most of us, that first day back at work is heartbreaking enough and conflicting enough. Like we're excited to be back at work and we hate leaving our babies. And it's a it's a a really emotionally complex day. But then to have all that go wrong, that would have sent me back home. Yeah. So it was real. It was very heartbreaking. And even more so for me, because not only was I excited about going back to work, I didn't have the same kind of heartbreak that a lot of women do in leaving their babies Mm -hmm. at home. One is I had the privilege of having a caregiver for my child while I was at work that I trusted and that I adored, which a lot of working mothers do not have. Like some don't aren't able to leave their child with someone that they completely trust. So they have that anxiety and guilt. I didn't have that piece of it. Um, And I was so in some ways naive to just how the world worked. Um, but needless to say, I went, I left home in tears and even on the train ride back had to kind of figure out, wow, this wasn't going to be as easy as I thought it was going to be. So one of the things that you wrote about that also reinforces why this time gets incredibly hard is, um, and, and Gloria Steinem also talks about this, the second shift. Mm-hmm. that that's going on all day at work. And then we're going home to this world where we're responsible for everything. Exactly. And, um, you know, Arlie Harshchild actually made that term, the second shift, popular. And she wrote a book um, that I refer to that is called the second shift. Literally, I would leave my office at the end of the day and tell all of my work colleagues, by now I'm going off to work <laughs> because <laughs> I often felt that that shift was even more Um, even more demanding. And a lot of women uh, feel, you know, the pressure of this second shift. Um, More and more men now are also feeling the pressure of the second shift. Mm -hmm. But a lot of it comes from a culture that really does and workplaces that really do assume that you have this ideal worker who can be all in 24-7 while someone else is taking care of the other things in their lives. And of course, now in today's economy, that person is actually in the workforce too. No, I so. remember getting direct instruction from my grandmother about how this is what you'll need to do to support your husband's career. Mm-hmm. And you need to know these skills and be able to do these things so he can be a success at work. Right. Never mind that it's, and like you said, you know, you come home, I live the same reality, and parenting starts when I walk in the door. Mm-hmm. So how, given the combination of you're now working full time, you're back at work, you've got a little baby, you've got good care at home, um, but you also have home control disease. 
So you're now doing the second shift, trying to be the Stepford wife, and continuing on this very clear path of maximum impact at work. Right. How did this affect your relationship at home, and how is it affecting your work and your well-being? Well, in, in, in a number of different ways. In terms of my relationship, it became really tense. Um, and I'm really honest in the book about this resentment that I came to really develop toward my husband, who had been my best friend. You know, we had been bosom buddies. We had had so many conversations and we're going to change the world together. And then somehow we had this life-changing event of having a child. And it just felt like to me, even though I didn't feel like I had a right to complain about it because it just seemed like, well, all women have kids and couples somehow figure this out. It just felt like, you know, we were both like in a relay race and we were doing really well together. And then all of a sudden there was a hurdle in my lane and there wasn't a hurdle in his. And it just felt like he was able to make all of these decisions about what he was going to do in his career. But I had to think about things like, you know, pumping at work and, and maternity leave and the impact that that was going to have. And so over time, very quickly, I began to feel like it wasn't fair and that somehow he was the reason why I couldn't flourish at work and in my life because he wasn't holding his weight or he wasn't pulling his weight. So I put a lot of blame on him for what I really felt was this seemingly unfairness and and not really articulating it ever. So, you know, I talk in the book about this thing called this stealth submarine resentment mm-hmm. that is just kind of underneath the surface, but it's, you know, you're ready to fire an attack at any time. And my poor husband would do something as simple as ask me, where's the pacifier? You know, and I would just spew off. Like in the same place it always is. I don't know why you're always asking me about <laughs> right. this, you know? Um, and I'm sure that he just chalked it up to me being sleep deprived and, you know, and all of this. But I eventually went to a mentor who, and I have a lot of just sage mentors in my life, who listened to me for a while talk about this unfairness and, and how, you know, my husband Kojo had it so much easier than I did. And she said to me something that I'll never forget that I write in the book, which is she says, Tiffany, resentment is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Yep. And it really did hit with me and sit with me that I was feeding myself. You know, resentment is very interesting. You basically have to curate this story, this narrative in which you're the hero in the story and the other person, and it could be your spouse, it could be a sibling, it could be your boss at work, that they're the bad person, they're the bad guy or they're the bad girl. And then you constantly see your relationship with that person and their behavior and what they say through the lens of that story. Right. And then, and, and that resentment just grows then. So yeah, we're going right. to take a short break, but I have to tell you before we go, um, that analogy with the relay side by side and the hurdle in your lane, but not Kojo's, um, I thought was brilliant. And it really makes sense with the way that you explain this as to how resentment can foment. And I can't wait until we come back after the break to talk more about how you took that advice and worked your way through it to actually create a revolutionary new approach. This is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zara, and we'll be back with Tiffany Dufu, author of Drop the Ball, Achieve More by Doing Less in a Moment. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. 
Welcome back to Women at Work, our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics, and today I am lucky enough to talk with the amazing Tiffany Dufu, author of Drop the Ball, Achieve More by Doing Less. Tiffany, welcome back to Women at Work. Thank you. So right before the break, we were talking about, um, I think, this amazing metaphor where you talked about how in these early stages of parenting, you realized that because of gender, you had always been running like a four by 100 relay side by side, passing the baton back and forth, and that gender emerged with parenting to put these hurdles in your lane that weren't in Kojo's, your husband's. That's right. And that um, it was so frustrating that he actually became the object of your resentment. Yes, very much so. And that along with that, the resentment was around this second shift that you were working every day, running the household to the standard that you had internalized was expected of you. That's right. Um, And clearly, none of this was working well. Things were not great in your relationship. It doesn't sound like you were getting a whole lot of sleep at that time. No. And things were starting to really pile up, but it never piled up before. And so how did you start to change this? Well, there were a few aha moments. Um, One had to do with parking tickets. So I, I live in New York City. I live in Harlem. And there's this interesting dynamic where you have to move your car if you own a car (laughs) across the street basically every other day in order to accommodate the city street cleaning ordinance. And are those the alternate side of the street parking regulations that you hear on the news? Exactly, exactly. Now, as as someone who's from the Pacific Northwest or pretty much any other part of the country, (laughs) it's very hard to, it seems crazy, but we do have to move our car. And if you don't move your car, you get this bright orange parking ticket. And, you know, one of the things that really fell through the cracks in the wayside as a very busy new working mom is that I would often be rushing home in order to relieve our child care provider and never having time to move the car for alternate parking, which meant that the next right. day we would get a parking ticket. And I, I'm just here to tell you, I don't know how many of those bright orange parking tickets you get before they come and like arrest you, but you can get a <laughs> lot of them. I discovered, and the world doesn't fall apart. So this is what started to happen was I really started dropping balls. I started doing things that in my previous life and world would have been abhorrent and completely unacceptable, not responding to people's birthday party invitations. Um, There's a story in the book about the mail. And what I just discovered over time is that, you know, like Armageddon never hit. (laughs) And so I began to think, huh, you know, why is it that I was so obsessed with doing all these things perfectly to begin with? And that really led me on this path to do what I think is the most important thing for all of us to do, which is getting clear about what matters most to you, Mm -hmm. separate and apart from what you've been taught, from what you've been told, from what you've seen. And it is a very difficult task because in the process of doing it, you realize that so much of your life isn't really your choice. It's really a default mode that you're in based on other scripts that other people have written for you. But that was kind of the first step for me was, mm-hmm. Tiffany, you've got all these expectations, but they're not really yours. They're really other people's. You need to stop and reflect and figure out 
what are the expectations that you want to hold yourself accountable to? And I did lots of things to try to get at this. Of course, I read lots of books because I'm a total bookworm. But the two exercises that were the most powerful were ones that anybody can do with little time and not very much money. You don't need any money. Um, the first was this visualization exercise in which you visualized your funeral. It was made very popular by Stephen Covey mm-hmm. in his book, The Seven <laughs> Habits of Highly Successful People. And again, it's kind of cheesy, but it's this really powerful exercise where you just imagine a friend, a coworker, a family member at your funeral in the future eulogizing you. And you imagine what they say about you and the impact that you've had on their lives and the world. And it's a very important exercise to do because it really gets you out of the trees, you know, and up into a higher state of why was I, why am I here on this planet anyway? Because without that, every day we're very much focused on, oh, my God, am I going to be late to this meeting? What do I need to do for this presentation? The second exercise was an exercise that really secured feedback from other people about the consistent experience that they've had with you. So you basically go to, again, people in your life, as many as possible, and just ask them a very simple question, which is, can you just talk to me a little bit or just tell me a story about when you have ever seen me at my best? And after you ask the question, you shut up and you just listen carefully. Hopefully you record their answer. You can take notes, you can do it on your iPhone, but the most important thing is to collect enough answers that you can go back And you can start circling all of the words and phrases that are similar and that are the same. And it's a really powerful exercise because you realize that you're not that different from when you were younger. (laughs) (laughs) For all of the evolution you think that you've, you've gone through, you'll notice that many people say, oh, my gosh, Tiffany, you've always been passionate. You've always been ambitious or you've always been an evangelist. You've always, there's always been a feminist streak in you, you know, and so you can piece together from the funeral visualization exercise, from this exercise that we call our, our best self exercise, really what is at the heart of what really matters most to you. And once you do that, then you can move on to this other question that I had to grapple with, which is, well, then what is my highest and best use? in achieving what matters most to me. I found a certain poetry in that process, um, given that when you started your marriage, you started with these high-level questions. And at another juncture in your life, this time it wasn't about the decision-making of partnership, but it was at another critical point where you knew you had to sort things out. You went back to asking these life-shaping questions. Absolutely. And it all... And it also sounds like some of them pointed you back to um, something. You tell a story in the book that I was just enormously moved by um, about uh, the hall pass that leadership gives you. Mm-hmm. And you tell that story. Would you? And and we're going to bring this all back together because I think they're they're quite connected. But tell me about that moment when you realized what leadership gave you. Yes, it was this very short story in the book where. I tell about a time that I was in school and I had always been a student leader. I was always running for student government. And one day I was walking down the hall and I could hear a voice behind me and I knew that it was our vice principal because I knew his voice <laughs> like the back <laughs> of my hand. And the voice booms out, what are you doing out of class? And I kept walking. And it occurred to me only after that moment that 
I knew without a shadow of a doubt that the vice principal, when he asked that question, couldn't possibly have been talking about me or to me because (laughs) I was always in the hallway during class time because I was a student leader. And it hit me that my student leadership gave me a permanent hall pass that gave me privilege that other kids in the school didn't have. And that in other parts of my life as a girl and as a you know young black person, that I was always told what I couldn't do, that I was always I was always taught to color in the lines, like mm-hmm. don't brag too much, like make sure that you like don't lift up your skirt, don't have sex, don't talk too much. But that leadership was this one area where not only could I break the rules, I could make them up. Right. So that at a time when you were getting all of these other messages, um, you couldn't even pray with Verve if you were out praying the boys. That's it. That's it. I couldn't get my hair wet. I couldn't get my braids wet. You know, I didn't learn to swim as an adult because my mom was like so paranoid about me getting my hair wet and messing up my hairstyle. (laughs) Right. By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Tiffany Dufu about her awesome book, Drop the Ball, Achieve More by Doing Less. So, Tiffany, when we look at this list of things that girls were not allowed to um, be in charge, be curious, be vocal, be sexual, be active, be proud, um, we talked before about how we're also not allowed to um, not be domestic goddesses. And you're now at the second, second juncture in your life, trying to figure out what is the best use of your time and how do you be your best self? It sounds like this is when you got to the point of creating Mel. Yes. Would yes, you tell exactly. us about Mel? Yes. So Mel just came out of um, just an aha moment. I was at work one day and I was leading a project at work and we were launching it. And I did what I normally do at work when we're launching a new project, which is I brought the entire team into the room and I wanted us to brainstorm what are all of the things that are going to be required from us in order for this project to be successful? What are all of the tasks that need to be completed? And then once we came up with a pretty exhaustive list, then we collectively began to assign to one another who would do what based on our gifts, our talents, our roles, we're basically figuring out what our highest and best use was in order to achieve success with this project. And, you know, it hit me on my way home that afternoon that I never do this at home. Like it never, we never, I don't manage my home this way. And so for the first time that day, I sat in my room, cross-legged on my bed with my laptop. And for the first time I got out all of the things that were required to manage my home out of my head and onto an Excel spreadsheet. And once I created the first column with all of the things that were required to manage our home, and it had everything from like washing the car to cleaning out the refrigerator to doing the taxes to paying the bills, I then created columns for my husband. I created a column for myself. And I created another column that I called the no one column, which turned out to be (laughs) the most important column and still is the most important column for several reasons in, in our life. And I then proceeded to put X's in my column next to all of the things that I did before I realized that was a terrible way to begin the exercise, that I never would have done that at work, right? Basically take to my team a list of all of the things that I do to show them that I do more. Like who, what manager does that? <laughs> right. <laughs> so I was like, I would never do that to my people at work. So then I went to my husband and we started, we created what I call our management Excel list, 
which we shortened to just call our Mel. And Mel has literally become another person in our relationship. So <laughs> sometimes when things don't happen, it's like, oh, we need to have another meeting with Mel. I'm like, yeah, I know you need to have a meeting with Mel. But, you know, it gives us this like third party that we can kind of blame things on. And rely on. Um, That's right. But it also sounded like it was an antidote to another problem that you alluded to before and you wrote about beautifully in the book, which was expending enormous amounts of emotional energy to get your husband to do what you want him to do without ever communicating directly that that's what you want him to do. Oh, my God. In the book, I talk about this phenomenon that I call imaginary delegation. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, when you assign someone a task, you fully expect them to complete the task. When they don't, you're annoyed and or enraged, but you never actually tell them that you assigned the task to them. And then when common sense prevails and you think to yourself, well, Tiffany, I never told them to take out the recycling, you snap back at common sense. Well, nobody has to tell me to do anything around here and it gets done. You know, and so I always say to women, if you ever walk into your home or if you ever walk into your office at work and think to yourself, why didn't anybody do and just fill in the blank, you may have been leading through imaginary right. And also it fuels, it gets fed by and in turn fuels the resentment that you feel when you're That's not it. working as a team. That's it. That's it. So as um, you as you made up Mel, um, one of the things that it sounds like it was happening was that your husband Kojo was starting to get a list of things to do. Yes. Well, the, the, the interesting thing about Mel is that one of the first things that happened was in laying it all out and this the story of Mel in the book is one of the first, um, one of the few times in the book where I really give a lot of dialogue as an author, because <laughs> what happened was that I discovered that this story about me being the only person doing anything around the house was actually not a true story. Tell but us I more. I didn't realize it until, <laughs> until we did this Mel exercise. And the first thing that my husband wanted to do wasn't just put X's next to our names under our columns, he wanted to add more to the list because there were things that I didn't put on there. So in the same way that he didn't realize what you were doing, you didn't realize what he was doing? That's right. That's right. That's right. Well, because I didn't value it or it just never occurred to me. And at first, the things were really small things that I laughed at, like he replaced the Brita water filter, you know, and I'm like, (laughs) okay, fine, fine, I'll give him that, you know, and then we went to the fact that he waters all the plants and I'm like, okay, okay, I'll give him that too, because we do have beautiful plants and I never do anything to them. So, okay, I'll give him that. But then it got more. It was like, well, who manages like all of your airline miles? And I was like, wow, you know, we do have multiple airlines and I, I couldn't tell you what any of our miles are, you know? And then he's like, well, who manages, you know, your investment accounts? And I'm like, wow, that's kind of important. And, you know, I couldn't tell you how much was in my 501k, right? <laughs> so, we, you know, you, you really come to realize that the story that you're telling isn't the full picture. But I think it was a powerful exercise because I realized, and so did he, that even with two people, two adults in a home managing it, there's still so much work to do that even if you both were running at full steam, doing all you possibly could, you still couldn't get it all done. Please, it never goes away, and it just replaces itself. Exactly, and so that's why the no one column became very important, because it became very clear that there were going to be things that we mutually agreed were just not going to get done. And we were going to stop blaming one another <laughs> and just, for the fact that it wasn't going to get done. And just be okay with it. And we were going to be totally okay with the fact that the car wasn't going to get washed for three months. 
that no one was going to fold the clothes. We were just going to pull clean clothes out of the laundry basket. But the most important and powerful um, outcomes of the no one column is how it has helped us to curate a village of support, which I really want to get to because Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, what I learned is that I can't do any of this by myself, that my leadership journey is a team sport. And what the no one column allowed us to do was delegate in a really effective way to anyone who asked us how they could help. And what we learned is that when someone says, how can I help you? And you say, oh, my gosh, we decided that we weren't going to wash our car, but it looks terrible. Can you go wash our car? (laughs) That people become addicted to helping you. It's like, oh, they gave me something to do. And they'll expect that you'll have something for them to do. And someone has even made a joke when I was touring and talking about the Mel that we must now at this point just put things in the no one column that we really do want to get done, but that we're hoping someone else will do. (laughs) Just be honest about it. You know, though, this is also another one of those themes that comes back. You have been connected. You, You are now leading networks, but you also joined them and fueled them throughout your entire life. And this is just a different form of a network. That's it. That's it. It's what I call, um, I was at an event in Salt Lake City, and someone said to me that we should call it a net weave, you know. Oh, that's great. Instead of a network, and I really loved that concept. May I I share that with others? Absolutely. Okay, thank you. Absolutely. It was a woman named Jackie Vayner, who you might know, who runs Women Women Moving Millions, um, who told me that, and I'll never forget it. I thought it was so beautiful because, yes, um, I accidentally developed a very powerful ecosystem of support. One, because of what I said earlier about I'm just a seeker. I like getting advice from other people. But also, I was never someone who I felt had access to some of the other, some capital that a lot of my colleagues had. So, mm-hmm. for example, I didn't go to an Ivy League school. Like, I graduated from all public institutions. And so I never felt that I had the Harvard or the Yale or the Wharton behind my name that, you know, people would give me an opportunity because of the brand affiliation. Right. And, and there was probably part of me that always felt like a little bit inadequate as a result of that, or I don't quite have a leg up. I also didn't have parents who could really give me access to people and to networks. In fact, I look back, you know, my parents didn't even know upon graduating from high school that you take kids on college tours. You know, I had one college that I wanted to go to. I applied to that college. I got into that college. And it wasn't until I got into college that I learned that so many of my friends had, like, toured other campuses. It's the experience of the first-generation college-goer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's another aspect of this that I don't want to, there's so much to talk to you about. I could do this for hours. But there's another aspect of your story that I think is critically important that I want to make sure we save some time for, which is to talk about the evolution of, in this process, what did your husband take on as you Mm -hmm. were trying to abandon some of your gender-typical roles? What was it like for your husband to take on roles that were typically the woman or the mother's roles? And what did that mean for you, for him, and for the kids? Yes. So, you know, if you asked my husband today about all of the things that he does to help me flourish at work and in life in terms of our home, you know, he'll tell you today, like, I don't like doing all these things. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. Sometimes he makes jokes about vintage Tiffany and about how, you know, it would be totally fine for him if he went back. Because um, he loved those will, Martha Stewart goodies. <laughs> yes. He, oh, he loves them. Um, but what he will tell you is that he has seen the benefit 
of what me dropping the ball has done for me and my career, for my well-being, and for our family, right? And so he's been able to benefit from the fact that his wife has earned more money than she ever would have if she hadn't have dropped the ball. Right, going back to your core principle of financial security. Absolutely. He can see that the difference she's been able to make from having the bandwidth to sit in coffee shops and write a book. He can see the difference that it makes in women's lives and in people's lives for me to be able to share this message. And quite frankly, for us to open up what what used to be a very, very private part of our world and our lives. And he's a private person. So even that was a big deal to him to give me the permission to be able to share our story with the rest of the world. I mean, he can he can see the difference that it's made. And so because we did start off knowing that we were in this together and that we would change the world together, it certainly is something that he's fallen back on. I like to think, and in the book I talk about this unrealistic expectation that we have of men too, that they should mm-hmm. strive to be breadwinners at all costs. You know, even the cost of engaging meaningfully with their families, even the cost of supporting the women in their lives. And how I hope that us moving toward a world in which we benefit from men and women's ingenuity on the home front can create more space for men to be able to become untethered from that unrealistic expectation. I feel like it's given my husband an opportunity for him to contribute to our household and to the world in ways that he wouldn't have been before and that are quite rewarding for him. And we've discovered that you know, there are things like managing a child's social calendar. You know, that's something that usually falls to women. Mm-hmm. It takes up a great deal of time. But one of the things we discovered is that the person who is the social butterfly in the relationship really should be managing the social calendar. <laughs> right. It makes right? a lot of sense, right? Not, not necessarily just defaulting to the woman. Now, unfortunately, you also have to deal with the implications of that, which is that the world doesn't necessarily evolve with women who drop the ball and with families who are evolved, right? So one of the challenges that we have is, for example, no one ever sends a child's birthday party invitation to their dad. Right. That always always goes to No, and those stigmas continue. Um, There's there's another arena in which I was wildly impressed, and it, it really reinforced for me why this is radical and why it's a revolution. And it, it, it was about Kojo traveling with the kids, taking them actually to Ghana, and mm-hmm. the trust that was reflected in that, what it meant for you, and what it meant for the kids. And so since we only have like about three minutes left, could you share that with us? Because I just think it's too important to leave out. Yeah. So we, um, you know, my husband travels so much for work that He basically lives all over the world, is how I'd like to call it. And there was a time when, you know, honestly, I was researching summer camps, and they're very expensive in New York. Oh, they're a fortune. They're a fortune. And it kind of hit me that, well, why don't the kids just go with him? Like, I know that, you know, it always defaults that the woman is a primary caregiver, but that it was just so much more practical when you thought about it, that the kids travel with him and just go with him in the summer. And one of the beautiful outcomes is what it's done to our kids in the context of their lives and the way that they view the world. And I write a story in the book about a time when my son had just come back from a trip to Ghana. And I asked him about what was the most favorite part of the trip. Like, what did he enjoy the most about being in Ghana for the summer? 
And he looked up kind of wistfully and he said to me, you know what I loved, Mom? I loved that I didn't have to hold a grown-up hand. And it was such a powerful moment for me as a mother because in New York City, like, my kids have to hold my hand. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, I wouldn't let them, like, not hold my hand. And it's, it's kind of ridiculous that I've tried to drop the ball in so many ways, but I will admit to your, to your, your <laughs> listeners that my son is going into middle school next year, and he still holds my hand while we're walking down the street. Um, so, you know, but in Ghana, it would, it would be so unnecessary. And it just really hit home for me that, We've been exposing our kids to different experiences and different ways of doing things and different ways of living and exposing them to different parenting styles really frees them up to understand that the world is diverse. And I really feel that it prepares them for it, for it in a really unique way. Absolutely. And not unimportantly, it reflects a trust and a respect that you have in your husband's ability to parent. And a primary role that he can bring to his life as a parent and to your kids that not only frees you to go make an impact, but enriches them in ways that most men never get to experience. That's right. That's right. And it's been beautiful. Tiffany, the whole story is beautiful. The work you're doing is so important. I can't thank you enough for joining us on Women at Work. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been great. If people want to learn more about what you are doing and get Drop the Ball, where can they find you and it? Dropthaball.com. <laughs> yeah, they should go to dropthaball.com. They can find me. They can find the book. And they can find the community. Fantastic. Tiffany, thank you so much. Keep doing this amazing work. We are all grateful. Thank you so much. Bye. And thank you to all of us for joining us today. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, you can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And be sure to follow our show on Twitter at BizRadio111. I'd like to give a special thank you to my guest today, Tiffany Dufu. I'd also like to thank our producer, Patty, our associate producer, Allie, our sound engineer. It's been great to have Dion back in the booth with us. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, on Sirius XM 111. Go out there, everybody. Do your best work and drop the ball. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you.